So in this B, hashtag B series, the overarching theme is our life in Christ in community. And that's what Pastor Kurt launched last week with the belong message. Um, and uh, Pastor Josiah, the way I like to say it, Pastor Josiah finished us off at the end uh, by saying, now after a message like that, you better not eat lunch alone. Uh, and so, uh, I think I have a picture. So this is a, one reason to be in the children's ministry. Um, well, by the time I made it over to uh, the children's ministry, all the people who helped uh, last week in children's ministry that were still there got invited to uh, belong at uh, California Pizza Kitchen. Um, and so uh, hopefully you uh, took the message to heart and have started connecting. But this series is about community. Um, and you might look at this morning's title and say, Be Holy. What in the world? Is this the wrong series? Did I, did I misunderstand Pastor Kurt's email? Um, now, if you go into a Christian bookstore, you can find stacks of books on community, small groups, how to be authentic. I love reading about how to pretend you're authentic. It's a great, it's a, it's a growth industry in, in Christian writing. Um, and um, what is the underpinning of most of them biblically are two passages. Here they are, they'll be on the screen, Acts 2.42, you may be familiar with this. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Really important, right after Pentecost. And then from Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And a real key phrase in the text, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. Now, as important as these passages are, by themselves, they're a really superficial biblical basis for being committed to a community of believers. If you're just gonna show up and sing a few songs and listen to a sermon and maybe go to lunch with somebody and then go home, and these con then these concepts are adequate as a basic understanding of community in the church. But the fact that the Bible says that you should go to church and that the early church had potlucks, some things never change, right? Uh, it isn't nearly enough reason to actually invest your life in a community of believers. So it's a reason to be a club, not a reason to be all in. So why should we care about community? Why should we immerse ourselves in the lives of other believers? Before I answer these questions, first I'm gonna give you some really good reasons not to invest in a church community. Um, this is, as you know, at least in my setting, teaching as a professor, doing the contrast is often really poignant, uh, and this will be poignant. Uh, in many ways, the American church, as you know, is really messed up. It, there's so many different ways. Forget for the moment that we have come to the place where astoundingly we have red churches and blue churches. That that, that, that would be the overlay instead of the scriptural worldview being the overlay. So set that aside completely for the moment. And now just think about the innumerable surveys that we're all familiar with that have shown us over and over again that 
Christians live, on average, just like the world. Same interests, same choices, same core values when they're really honest. And when that happens, when the church is messed up, it's perfectly set up to do what? To hurt people. Surprise, people come into the church and say, well, this is no better than work. I'm, I'll just go back to work. At least I get paid there and they don't ask me to do anything. Um, notice, it's perfectly set up to hurt people, to disappoint people, to turn people off and to make them suspicious of the church and they have lots of reason to be. So with this kind of dynamic going on, lots of people react and here are some common reactions to the messed up church. I was gonna say number one, sometimes they make us take notes, but, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave that as number zero. Um, reaction number one, you ready? Getting so tired of the church's faults that I become disillusioned. Many Christians start all in. But gradually, what happens? Experience, events, uh, hypocrisy, mistreatment, and they gradually move to the sidelines. So they get busy with work and school activities and kids' sports. And they take these good things and allow them to become distractions that really become a new way of life. They, they really, they keep their church club maybe, but they're really committed to other clubs. So they disengage, become spectators at church, and they let other people minister and serve. And in the end, maybe they show up to the gathering and maybe they're in a, even in a small group, but they aren't really deeply engaged. Reaction number two is gonna make some of you squirm. I move from church to church. American Christianity. This is incredibly common nowadays. It expresses itself in several ways. Here's the groups, short list. The I'm not being fed group. How many times have you used that one as an excuse? The uh, this church doesn't meet my needs version. And of course, there's the I don't like the music set and so just like Pastor preached last week, it is your fault, Pastor Josiah. Um, <clears throat> what else can we say? Sorry, back-to-back, -back, uh, one-two punch. Um, but you, how many times have you heard it? So guess what we have in American churches, many American churches? We have connoisseurs of worship. Reaction number three. I leave the church and make a plan for Christianity. Oh, it, it gets way worse, Allie. Uh, I, I, I leave the church and make a plan for Christianity outside of the church. A huge number of people, especially now with the uh, ability to be unengaged, but say I attend church by watching 30 minutes a week so that you know if somebody asks you what the pastor preached about, you can remember three points. Um, the reality is there's a lot of this going on. And here's the common expression, look at it, I've written it up. I can follow Christ on my own, without having to be part of an organized church. Now to be fair, in some ways, this reaction is completely understandable, isn't it? See, so many churches are so broken. So people convince themselves that their individual plan to live a Christian life outside of the body is even better than sticking with the messed up church. But here's the problem. No matter how you try to justify that, it's simply not God's plan. And I want to show us how non-biblical it is for a Christian to try to follow Christ without being 
committed to a church. Here's the connection precepts, ready? Connection precept number one, here's your blank. The church of Jesus Christ is never an individual or even several parts. It's always, listen, it's never an individual or even just a few parts. It's always a whole body. You may be familiar with 1 Corinthians 12 and this passage, look at this, for even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, by the way, these are huge divisions at the time that Paul wrote this. Massive, it was worse than red and blue. That's how divided this was. And here he is, he has the audacity to say, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit for the body is not one member, but many. And so to say, I can follow Christ on my own is the same as thinking that a mouth or an ear or an eye can say, I don't need the brain. How foolish of us. Connection precept number two, ready? If you try to be a Christian while disconnected from the body, listen, if you try to be a Christian while disconnected from the body, then by definition, you'll also be disconnected from the head. And who's the head? Jesus is the head. So the body metaphor is incredibly instructive. If you wanna be connected to Christ, you must be connected to the body. It's how he connects with individuals is by being the head of a body that they are a part of. So look at this. Uh, I think this is really, really helpful. Connection number three, look at this. For a person to say, I'm gonna follow Christ, but I'm not gonna be really committed to a church is arrogant and even heretical. Now I can make that, that strong of a statement because I wanna show you how this flows directly out of scripture. For a Christian to say that they aren't gonna be part of a church is a rejection of Christ's claim that he's the vine and we're the branches. Look at this key concept, write it in. Let this sink in. Trying to be, here's your blanks, trying to be a Christian apart from the church is like saying that I'm not just a branch. I'm actually a vine. And there's only one vine. It all has to come from Jesus and guess where it comes? It comes flowing into his body of which he is the head. But this assumes, think about it, when I'm basically saying, nah, I'm a vine, I'll do fine. I'll be okay on my own. This assumes that I can live the Christ life without being connected to his body, that I can be my own source of spiritual vitality and that I'm capable of ready, I'm capable of hearing the word of Christ and knowing the will of God on my own. Pride. For a believer to say, I don't need the church to live the Christian life is making an enormous assumption about my own holiness and my own wisdom and my ability to hold myself accountable for my actions and my attitudes and on my attitudes, most of them I can't even see myself. It makes the ridiculous claim that I can stay on fire for God by myself. But this is one of the reasons why the word uses the idea of fire when it talks about living the spirit-filled life. And you ready? 
Here's a great analogy. Here's your next blanks. A great analogy for the Christian living apart from the church. When you remove a burning coal from the fire, it will always inevitably go out. Listen, it will always inevitably go out no matter how hot it was when it started. It may be my pure devotion to Christ that leaves me to leave all those schmucks behind in the church. My pure devotion to Christ. But it doesn't matter how much I'm like Jesus, when I leave, that coal inevitably will go out. And now I'm gonna press this into a related issue. You're fortunate that you came this morning for this part. While many Christians haven't abandoned the church altogether, they just simply show up sporadically. Many churchgoers only attend corporate worship once or twice a month. In fact, in some of the surveys now, that is what a frequent, a, a frequent attender of churches once a month by some of their definitions. And in fact, if renovation is like many churches, then a third of those in the, the church, call us our church, aren't here today. Uh, and and um, the ones who are here today, a third of them won't be here next week, but no problem. The third that's missing will show up next week, so we get pretty close to a decent average when we count people up. Um, and uh, after all, it is football season. And there's kids' sports. And now my kids' team plays on Sunday, and we can't possibly miss that club for a church club. Now, don't misunderstand this. Following Christ isn't about an attendance quota. It's about, ready? It's about belonging and engaging. It's about investing and serving. But you can't do this without being continuously connected to the body. So belonging is about being all in, and it's about being here for others, ready, when you don't feel like being here for yourself. How many Americans show up to church for somebody else instead of what I like and what I want to do? I know, it's amazing to think of a church that was birthed with the cross being their symbol. I lay all my life down for even my enemy to be a church now that says, well, I don't really like the music because you know I wanna go to the church that I fancy. So, here's a very, very, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna ask you a question, okay? So, so um, this goes to the every other Sunday crowd. Um, it sounds nothing like a pastor this is gonna sound much more like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and I know probably half of you have pretty much whited out or at least underlined nothing in either of those prophets. They're just too mean, right? Um, now, by the way, don't hold this against me, okay? I mean, here's, here's my life. People come in, there's two kind of people that come in. The first group is they're trying to die. And so you wanna know what my... Career is, my career is putting tubes in all their holes and making new holes and putting tubes in those holes. That's my life. And you know what? Hey, hey don't laugh. I mean, you know what? If you're dying, Pastor Kurt can pray for you, but you don't really need him. You need me, okay? You need, you need somebody that doesn't care that it hurts. So the other kind of people we get is, you know, when people, this is emergency medicine, the other half. When people are too obnoxious for the cops, Guess where they bring them? To the ER. Now, this, we're okay with this because you know why? 
I have great drugs. <laughs> and it's legal for me to use them on them. And so, the, uh, I shouldn't take this time, but I mean, you're, I gotcha. Um, <laughs> okay, so think about this. They come in and they're saying, I'm gonna, you know, they're drunk, head injured, injured you know, blow, throwing up blood all over everywhere. And they're screaming, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill you and I'm gonna find your family and I'm gonna kill you. And I'm just sitting there calmly as can be. And um, what I'm thinking, I would never say this to the residents because, you know, we're doctors, so we're supposed to have compassion. Um, so notice, uh, I'm thinking, uh, not only are you not gonna find me and my family and kill us, but in 30 seconds, if I don't breathe for you, you're gonna die because I'm giving you this drug right now. The nurse is giving it while you're yelling at me. She's been giving you this. And, um, and what's great about those drugs is they don't remember any of it. All they know is I get the letter from them. You saved my life. It's a really good gig. So here's the key though. Here's the, here's the key. You don't want me to be your pastor, okay? So that's the, that's the disclaimer. And in fact, Dana's here today, so I write two messages every time I preach. One if Dana's gonna be there and one if Dana's not. Um, because she's my great accountability partner. Let me just tell you what a great accountability partner is. She adores me and she's not impressed. Which occurs to me, Pastor Kurt, why Jan and Dana are such good friends. I just, uh, anyway, so, so you ready for the very non-pastoral question to the every other weekers? Do you actually believe that you know enough about the infinite God that while others need to hear the word preached every week, you only need half that much? Yeah, I told you. Fortunately, we have real pastors here too. Um, look at this. Here's the bottom line. You need to be here every week and you need to be so engaged that there are others showing up looking for you because they're not sure they can make it unless they connect with you. You need to become so important in someone else's life here that you don't even consider missing the weekly gathering because they'll be really disappointed that you aren't here. Ready? Listen, church, for them not for you, for them. So, let me ask you, who do you go to church for? Be honest. Do you go for you or do you go for others? So let me tag up. We began the message by asking some questions. Why should we care about community? Why should we immerse ourselves in the lives of other believers? And pretty quickly, guess where we found ourselves? neck deep in the theology of the body of Christ and in Christ being the vine and us being the branches rather than the other way. But, but uh, if that weren't enough heavy-duty biblical support, now we're gonna see that the idea of leaving the organized church or showing up only half the time or staying unengaged, these are actually in direct opposition to the very nature of God himself. Why should we immerse ourselves in the lives of other believers? It's a single word. Trinity. Believe it or not, it's actually the triune nature of God that establishes the very foundation for the existence of the church as a community. So listen, the true church, I'm using capital T, capital C. The true church, listen, the true church is not a strategy. It's not an organization, and it's not an institution. 
It's actually a living, breathing organism. It's a body. And this life reflects the reality of the nature of the one from whom all life flows. And now we've come to the relational implications of the Trinitarian nature of God. Now you may have wondered why the music this morning was all about the nature of God and the Trinity and the creeds. Here's a key. I'll start with a surprising theological truth. Ready? Here's your blanks. Trying to live the Christian life apart from the body is, at its foundation, a rejection of the triune nature of God. Listen, trying to follow Christ without being deeply engaged with a community of believers is just, isn't just disobedience to God's plan for your life. It's actually a rejection of who God is. Because, ready, at his essence, God is relational. He's not transactional. He's relational. And not only is this statement true, it's actually the underlying uh, purpose in the entire biblical understanding of what it means to be Christian. So let me illustrate this with an amazing fact. This is gonna blow your mind. Do not leave because you think I'm preaching heresy until after I explain myself. Here we go, write it in, ready? Not even Christ could be holy all by himself. Say what? Not even Christ could be holy all by himself. There's an incredible series of statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. He says stuff like this, listen. All that I do comes from the Father. All I care about is to do my Father's will. I can do nothing of my own initiative, but I only do what my Father says to do. And there are so many of these statements in the Gospel of John. We're going to look at just one chapter in only, there's actually more of this even in this chapter, but look at verse 19 in John chapter 5. Jesus therefore answered, saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing from himself. I can't be holy on my own. I can't do anything on my own. I don't know what to do on my own. All of that comes from my relationship with the Father. It's a stunning statement. Look at this of himself, unless it is something he sees his father doing or what, for whatever the father does, these things the son does also in like manner. You ready? Jesus, the one, the first cause who spoke the universe into existence is still in his relationship, continually mentored by the father. How can you be all knowing and still be mentored by someone else? It's a stunning concept that emerges from the Trinity. Look at this, verse 26. For the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself. So you wanna say, I'm a vine? Jesus wasn't a vine unless it came from the Father. Not even Jesus claimed that his life came from himself. And then verse 36, look at this. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish Right, what to do, what righteous things to do. He didn't say, well, I'm righteous in myself, I'm gonna go out. No, he was always saying, Father, what's my righteousness? Look at this, for the work, those very works I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So think about what Jesus was saying in the Gospel of John, here's your blanks, everything that Jesus is, including his holiness, flows from his relationship his relationship with his father. Think about this. The holiness of God flows from the triuneness 
of God. In other words, this is really important. God's perfection flows out of the perfect relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. God's perfection flows out of the perfect relationship. Are we picking up on a pattern here? Out of his relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now, we'll see how profoundly this should impact the church. To say that I can follow God by myself is an inherently non-Trinitarian statement. It's arrogance of the highest order. You know why? Not even Jesus said, I can be a, do it on my own. Oh my, and yet it's, we just, it's like flippantly, I don't, I don't need that, I don't need the church. I can follow God on my own. No, you can't. It just can't happen because it's rejecting who the God of the Bible actually is at his essence. Now, um, let's uh, look at three key concepts, ready? Key concept number one, ready? Here's your blank. No person, including God, can be holy apart from living in relationship with other persons. That flows right from what I taught. You ready? This concept explains Jesus' answer when he was asked the greatest commandment. Think, think this through with me. Why isn't, first of all, why isn't the greatest commandment a law or a rule? It's not. They, they wanted to know, like, what's the one big rule? What's the one big thing? But look at this. It it can't be stated in this single statement to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He asked, they asked for one commandment and he gave them two in one. Because that statement cannot be stated without adding love your neighbor as yourself. You wanna be pure? You wanna follow God's greatest command? Love. That's the great command. That's the big rule that isn't even a rule, it's actually a way of being. See, just like God within his very Trinitarian nature, no one can be holy apart from living in relationships with others. And now track with me here. People try to say that the sins they do in secret don't affect anyone else. Now this of course is absurd. Every time we willfully disobey God's will, we add power to the forces of darkness and when we give power to the enemy, it affects everyone in the world. When the enemy is empowered by my sin, it affects everyone. Notice, there is an exact, exact parallel in the concept of holiness. There's simply no such thing as holiness in isolation. It doesn't happen. This precept is so fundamental. You ready when it was first declared? This is stunning. Absolutely amazing to me. Look at Genesis 1:26. Here it is. Then God said, "Let me make man in my image according to my likeness." Anything wrong? That is not what it says. You ready for this? It took only 26 verses to get into the most important attribute of God. Ready? Look at what it actually says. Then God said, let us, the one God talking to himself. Notice he's not schizophrenic. He's Trinitarian. Got that? That's a diff big difference. The one God saying, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, I wonder why he put three plural pronouns in there. Mm, father, son, 
and Holy Spirit. It exudes from the first chapter of Genesis. Notice, the one creator, the one Jehovah, the one El Shaddai, the one almighty God is three persons. And what does this mean? It means we were created like God. So when the word calls us to be holy, to be like Christ, to be like God, it means that the individual human must be deeply connected to others. If we're not, we cannot be like Christ. It doesn't happen. Now, what it means to be like God doesn't begin as an individual. You know, the Old Testament people, before we Americanized the Old Testament even, you know what they all knew? We're all lost together and we're all saved together. There was no concept of an individual, I accepted Jesus by myself, I'm now, to, now a Christian, no matter what anybody else does. It was no, we're all, you know what? When the, when the shep, if the shepherd falls off the cliff, guess what happens to almost all the sheep? They go right over the cliff with them. So notice, this is fundamental to biblical concept. Key concept number two. The essence of the Unitarian God cannot be love. The essence of the Unitarian God cannot be love. Now pay attention, I know it just got kind of theological. Hang with me, because this really matters. And it explains why you should be at a church that preaches God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. See, we're gonna contrast the Trinitarian understanding of God with the alternative. I'm sure you must know, almost for sure, that the monotheistic religions, among all of them, only Christianity believes that the one God is in three persons. So, God is plural in his personality. All of the other monotheistic religions are Unitarian. They believe that God is a single being, a single entity, a single essence. But many people fail to recognize the awesome implication of Unitarianism. Think about it. What do you think of a person who loves only themselves? What do you think of a person who's only self-absorbed? One person, all about self-love. I know what you think because I know what I think. I know what we all think because all of us inherently know that self-love turned in on itself is the antithesis of biblical love and antithesis of the biblical God because the very essence of love is giving oneself to another person. There is no other definition of love. It's not a feeling, it's an unbelievably deep sacrifice and choice. That's what real love is. Now watch this, ready? God was God from eternity past. Go now before any other beings existed, before the universe existed. He, eternity passed before anything and before anyone else. Ready? He existed before there, was, there were angels, before there were humans. So if that eternal God, think of this, if that eternal God is love, and if he's only a single entity, if he's the Unitarian's God, the Jehovah's Witnesses God, if he's Islam's God or Judaism's God, then notice when he loves himself, this self-love is the height of self-centeredness. The Unitarian God can't be love because from eternity past, the only one he could have loved was turned in on himself if he was one person. This is remarkable to think about. So. 
At his essence, the Unitarian God couldn't be loved because he couldn't have given himself to anyone else until other beings existed. The God of love that had existed from eternity past would actually be the God of self-centeredness. And this leads to key concept number three, ready? Since God existed before anyone else, it's only the triune in his triuneness that God can love himself. Look at that. It's only in his triuneness that God can love himself and simultaneously sacrificially give himself to other persons. So that's how the one God could say, the one God could say, if the father wants me to die, I'll die. Because I love the father so much that I love it more even than my claim to omnipotence, to all power. Even though I'm the creator, I can give myself to the Father to die for all of those others. You ready for the whole essence of the holiness of God? Here's your blanks. The three persons are perfectly holy because of their perfect love relationship with each other. Wow. Now, look at the title of the message. Be holy. So you can't be holy except in community. Now, most people think, here's the typical American, when they come home from church, if somebody would say, now, what's it mean to be holy? They'd say, well, it means um, you don't sin. Did you know that the definition of holiness is not the absence of sin? Quick and easy, your dog doesn't sin, your cat doesn't sin, your pet fish doesn't sin, but not one of them is holy. Holiness is not the absence of sin. Holiness is the presence of me sacrificing my will and hopes and desires for others. That's what holiness is. That's why, guess what? When they were saying, what's the rule? What was his answer? Love. Self-giving love for the Father? Self-giving love for others. There is no other rule, folks, if you really understand Trinity. And that's why Paul could get to the end of those seven, the the nine uh, fruits of the Spirit, which are their essence, are other looking, elsewhere looking, and say, against such things, there is no law. Love is the great law. So here's the application, ready? Because God's holiness is inherently relational, No one can truly follow God without being committed to a community of believers. Committed, committed to a community of believers. Now, right up front, I want to point out what a bummer this application is. This is a a bad application. I don't even like it, and I wrote it. Okay, ready? Can you imagine how great it would be to invest your life in the church if you didn't have to get along with all the other people here? I mean, if, if, you didn't have, if there was no bozos in the church, it'd be great, but there are. So wouldn't it be great if you could have, okay, so Pastor Kirk, can you imagine what a great church renovation would be if it was just you? I mean, in fact, it occurs to me, everybody would get the vision, all one of you. Um. And I can only say this because, because we've been such good friends for so long, but as wonderful as Pastor Kurt is, he doesn't hold a candle to Jan. So Jan, can you imagine how great the Jan church would be? 
you wouldn't even have to get along with Kurt. This would be great. Okay, so notice, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this, the absurdity to show that we all want the church to be exactly like we want. So a whole bunch of selfish people show up for themselves, for what they like at church. And guess what you mix all that in together? Guess what the church looks like to the world? A bunch of self-centered, self-righteous religious people who don't care about everybody that Jesus cares about. A central selfishness to why I even go to church can be a part of driving this. So. I want you to listen very carefully. It's time for us to look at the flip side of the point that seems so obvious to us. You see, what's so obvious to me is just how annoying the church can be. It's obvious to me. It's obvious how many high maintenance people there are in the church. There's whiners and snivelers and and takers and, and babies saying, feed me, feed me, wah, 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 and it drives me nuts. Now, don't sit there looking all pious. You've thought the same thing, okay? So, so yes, I'll join you at the altar for what I just said. But look at this. I, I now want us all to take a big step back. This is gonna be really hard to grasp for the typical American Christian. <coughs> Has it ever occur, occurred to us that maybe those really annoying people in the church are us? I know it's never occurred to you, has it? I mean, just just think about this. Let this soak in. Is it possible that it's actually others who are tolerating us? Is it possible that the Lord put people around us who we don't like and he put them into the church to save us from ourselves instead of the other way around? That our reaction to them may literally be God saying, Won't you wake up to your selfishness? Why do you go to church? Why are you here? When was the last time you saw someone at church and you thought, I think they might have some deep needs. I wonder if I could be the answer, little a, for the answer, big A, in their life. So, let me personalize this. Has it ever occurred to me that it costs the church way more to put up with me than it costs me to put up with the church? I know, you didn't expect this message, did you? Holy cow. And now, I'm really gonna press. (laughs) Wait for the size now, Pastor Allie. Um, Do we realize how indebted we are to the body of Christ? We live in a day when lots of people say, I don't like the church and, and I have my Bible. And so you ready? It's gonna be Jesus and the Bible and me. They say things like, I know I don't gather with the body every week and I often do things on Sunday other than be with the body and I'm not serving in the church and I'm not, not really invested, but that doesn't mean I'm not a good Christian. Ever heard that? Do you realize how naive those statements are? I'm gonna respond and get near the end here with a series of ironies. If you haven't written anything in, I would write this in because these are truly ironic and instructive. Irony number one, ready? Remember, it's, it's, it's Jesus and the Bible and me. You ready? The only reason you even have the Bible <laughs> is because of that annoying, inconvenient church that you don't think you need. Listen to this. It was the body that kept the faith 
all through the centuries. Some of them handing the text through prison bars before they went to the fire to keep the word so you and I could own 20 of these today. How arrogant to think that we don't need the church. There'd be no Bible if it weren't for the church. Irony number two, (laughs) these are actually pretty cute. If it weren't for the church, you'd never have known Christ so that you could have the insight to be disillusioned about, ready? About the church. You would never have had enough spiritual depth to say, wow, we better change that in the church. That's really bad. Guess why you have Jesus so you know to be annoyed with the church? Because the church brought Jesus to you. That inconvenient, annoying church. Irony number three. While I'm annoyed with the bride, oh, this convicts me. Jesus adores her and he plans to marry her. How often I complain about the bride that Jesus adores. And that leads me to the really ugly one. Irony number four, that incredibly annoying bride includes me. Perfect bridegroom, ugliest bride in history, including me. And he can't wait to marry us. He's saying, Father, is it today? Is it today? Is it time yet? I can't wait for the wedding with us? Are you kidding me? Oh my, we should all be on our faces before what it means to love like God loves. So as we close, I wanna leave us with a series of questions. I'm gonna do it in the first person pronoun for all of us. Okay, it's not just me, but it certainly is me, but it's you too. Do I realize how much I'm indebted to the body of Christ? How much was it worth that the church brought the gospel to the land where I was born? Aren't you glad you weren't born in Tehran? You think you would have found Jesus on your own? You were born in a place where you hear the gospel freely preached all the time. How much is that worth? How much is it worth that I've been surrounded by people in the church who love God? How much is it worth that I've heard Jesus because of the church as flawed as it is? Now, some of you are thinking, well, I didn't find God at church. I, 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 my parents or my grandparents led me to Christ. Well, let me ask you, how likely it is your parents or your grandparents would have known Jesus without the church? They wouldn't have. So, do I really believe that I would have been saved by figuring it out on my own? Do I realize that if it were not a part of the community of the church, listen, we are all lost. And as I ask myself, am I humble enough to recognize that what I really need is all of you. If I'm ever gonna have any hope of becoming the person that God wants me to be, I need you. And maybe one or two of you need me. And, and I'm, I'm grateful enough to God that I'm willing to give back to the body. And I'm thankful enough to be part of the answer for others in the church who might be disillusioned or hurting or marginalized or doubting.
Pastor Josiah, bring the team up. Uh, maybe you've been hurt by the church or disappointed by the church or disillusioned with the church or maybe you've gotten so tired of the church's faults that you've become passive and distracted and disinterested. Or maybe you've caught yourself in self-pity because you don't think the church or the leaders have taken care of you or been responsive enough to your needs. The list is very long. So let me ask it this way. Are you willing, listen to this, I'll say it twice. Are you willing to be the church for someone else that's like the church that you wish you had been a part of? Are you willing to be the church that you wish others had been for the church, right? The the concept of if you think the church is messed up, then be the church to someone who might think the church is messed up. So here's the thing. We're all called to be in relationship. We're all called to be in community. We're called to be in fellowship because none of us, not one of us can be like Jesus on our own. If this church is your church, are you deeply invested in the body life? And if you're a visitor, are you deeply invested in a body? Do you suffer from, uh, with those who suffer? Do you rejoice when others rejoice? Do you even look and care and have your eyes open looking for it? And Do you care enough to be connected so that you know when others are in pain? Are you in when the body's worshiping? Because if you're not part of the body, you can't be like Jesus. Are you in when the body is serving? Are you in when the body is sacrificing? Because Jesus gave everything for this group of people in the room right now. So here's what we learned today. We're called to reflect the very nature of God and his nature is to live in community, to live in relationship, to live in commitment to others, to live in self-sacrifice. And God established his church as the place where we reflect his nature. So here's the call. No matter what happens in the past, no matter what you think, No matter what you saw online, no matter what your story is, no matter where you find yourself today, and no matter what the cost, just like Jesus, be connected, be committed, be present, be all in. So as we respond, we're gonna sing about the triune nature of God. We all thought this was a theological song. This is a inherently relational love song. When we sing about him, we're singing about sacrificing love. When we sing about him, we're singing about being self-giving. He could have been all at the center of his own universe and instead he's never at the center of his own universe. He's always giving. So I'm not calling us to declare theology We do that all the time. I'm calling us to ask the question while we sing this, when we hear of this amazing triune God who said, all that I am comes from somewhere else. Every hope I have comes from somewhere else. And the last person on the earth that anybody else will care about, that's my parish. 
That's who I want to be the church to. Stand, congregation, and let's declare the amazing Trinity as we sing the creed. Pastor John.